It's time to put on your sleuthing cap, feel nail-biting dread, and face heart-racing fear. This is Queer Writers of Crime, where you'll get book recommendations and hear interviews with LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. Here's your host, Brad Shreve. Hi, this is Brad, and I have a new feature here on Queer Writers of Crime. This is the very first month that it's being done. Each month, the fourth week, this will normally be on Tuesday, but this month, since it just started back from hiatus, we're a little bit off. But the fourth Tuesday of every month will be recommendations for books by guests who had been on the show. I haven't figured out what to call it yet. Uh, I'm thinking celebrity recommendations. I don't know. If you have a good idea, let me know. I can't think of anything yet, but we'll call it something. But I do want to let you know that I mentioned on the show that I have recently moved from L.A. out to the California desert. And unfortunately, I don't have my studio set up yet. So the sound will sound a little different with each of the guests. I think uh, Barbara Wilson, she gives a great book recommendation. But we even had to use something like WhatsApp, something crazy that you normally wouldn't use for uh, a podcast. Good thing is she sounds great. I sound kind of muffled, but it's okay. It's not bad. It's just not radio quality. We'll put it that way. So sit back, enjoy the show, and uh, you'll have to let me know if you like it. Okay, Marshall Thornton, it's your turn. You are the first guest on the show that is going to be part of our monthly book recommendation celebrity show. And I am anxious and excited to find out what book you are going to recommend. And I think you're going to give me more than one today, aren't you? You hinted at that. Yep, I will. Okay, let's hear them. Okay. So the first book I want to recommend is is The Mainstream Mystery, actually, by um, William Kent Kruger, called Lightning Strike. And I, I think this book is quite interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, he writes a series that he's been working on since 1989 with a character named Cor Corcoran. Uh, in northern Minnesota, I think it is, and um, right by the Canadian border. And this book is a prequel to that and takes place, um, gosh, 20-some years before that series even starts. And I, I thought that was really intriguing. And I enjoyed the book, and I one of the things that I enjoyed a lot about it was that it takes place near an Indian reservation, and the character comes from a mixed family. Uh, his grandmother is a full-blooded Native American um, or First People. And um, so his, he's a quarter. And I just thought that he did a really great job of writing the book at the, um, at the intersection between two cultures. And as someone who kind of does that a lot, <laughs> you know, I thought that was very interesting. And I enjoyed that. The, the second book I'd like to run is the uh, A Queer History of the United States by Michael Bronsky, um, which is sort of a, a survey of queer history since the country began and kind of and shows the relationship between queerness and our history and how it's been, always been there. Um, and I enjoyed the book quite a lot, and I recommend it, and I wouldn't be surprised to find it on a banned book list somewhere. I am absolutely certain you are right. And actually, Michael Bronski is the author, and actually, I guess, Kim Nielsen. 
and what I find interesting is they don't just do queer history. They, they drive uh, conservatives crazy because they haven't just wrote the queer history of the United States. They did the disability history of the United States, the indigenous people history of the United States, the African-American and Latinx history of the United States, and the black woman's history of the United States. How dare they? Where are all the white men? <laughs> Straight white men made this country strong. So good recommendation. I'm actually uh, I've been planning on picking that one up. And and just so folks know that notice uh, Marshall did not either. Of those were neither of those were uh, LGBTQ mysteries. And I've had actually quite a few authors say, "Do I even have to do a mystery?" And I said, "You talk about you recommend whatever you're passionate about, and that is because a good book is a good book." And I think it's important to be go go beyond our, our boundaries. Absolutely. So thank you, Marshall. Sure. Thank you. Barbara Wilson, what author are you going to recommend today? A British author named Sarah Codwell. And what's the name of her book? Thus Was Adonis Murdered. Thus Was Adonis Murdered. Murdered. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do tell. I want to hear about this. <laughs> well, it's a classic mystery novel by the British author Sarah Codwell. And this book was published originally in 1981, though it's always been in print since then. It was the first of only four mysteries by Codwell. And her novels often hinge on the British tax code, which doesn't sound very sexy. <laughs> but it's part <laughs> of their comic charm. It also enables her to write about money and devious characters in international settings like Monaco, the Channel Islands, and the Caymans. So you think trust funds and offshore accounts and murder, of course. The books are filled with hilarious portraits of eccentric characters, including a group of young lawyers or barristers who occupy offices or chambers at Lincoln's Inn in London. And they're Desmond Ragwort, Timothy Shepard, Selena Jardine, Michael Cantrip, and Julia Larwood, who is the brilliant tax lawyer who's the hapless heroine of Thus Was Adonis Murdered. But the narrator of the series is Hilary Tamar, a former tutor of one of the barristers and now a don at Oxford. And Hilary Tamar's gender is never spelled out, Hilary being both a male and female name in England. This makes Hilary one of the first or the very first non-binary detectives in crime fiction. The lack of a male or female gender and the polished, old-fashioned, and distinctive voice of Hilary Tamar are two of the pleasures of this series, I think, especially when they're contrasted with some of the wilder goings-on. And I'm fascinated that in 1981, Sarah Codwell included not one, not two, but three gay and bi men in her novel, with another couple of possibly queer chaps to boot. The That's really interesting, of, especially um, the fact very, that early to have non-binary. I know, I know. I, and I don't think we even had a term for it back then. We didn't. People thought it was clever. <laughs> and what happened is that people um, would say they would just assume Hillary is a woman. I did for a long time. Yeah. And men, men had assumed uh, that it was a man, especially in England. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware that uh, Hillary was a male name in England. Yes, I, I think one of the polar explorers was named Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, but that was his last name. But anyway, I've heard it used occasionally. 
um, like Francis is uh, used more frequently in England too. Anyway, the plots of Codwell's books are very intricate. A lot of the action happens off stage in the form of letters that different characters write to the group of friends and to Hillary Tamar. And there are also telephone calls, telegrams, and telexes in these first novels, given that in the early 1980s, not only were there no personal computers or email, but faxes hadn't been invented either. So Hillary Tamar, like the scholar they are, has to sift through differing accounts of witnesses to make sense of the mystery, which often includes a murder or two or three. And in this book, in Thus Was Adonis Murdered, Julia Larwood, one of the young barristers, has gone off to Venice on an art lover's tour. Julia is beautiful. She knows everything about tax law, but she's also forgetful and clumsy, always falling over things. Uh, losing her way in cities, um, can't even read a guidebook. She's impetuous and passionate. The object of her infatuation in this book is the reluctant bisexual Ned, an unbelievably handsome young man on the tour who turns out to work for the Inland Revenue in England, our IRS, and whose dead body is found in the room where he and Julia took a siesta. Julia's copy of the British Finance Act being found near his body, she's promptly taken off for questioning by the Italian police. The mystery turns on tax law and trust and on people who are pretending to be someone else than who they really are. It's, it's funny because it does sound not so sexy, but also very intriguing. Yes, yes, Um yeah, it is. You wouldn't think taxes were so fascinating, but it's actually very funny. It's a, quite a satiric takeoff on um, on lawyers and on uh, accountants. Well, Especially- I stumbled on a uh, article recently. I think it was in Writer's Digest magazine, and it it said something like, "Let's start being more creative when it comes to motives." And it gave a long list of. You know, they said nobody ever seems to use these. And I was like, wow, those are really good <laughs> examples. Of course, I can't find the article anymore. But <laughs> oh, that would be interesting to read, actually. Yeah, I'll have to yeah. find it. If I ever find it, I'll send it your way. Well, you know, they say that um, money and uh, and love are the two things that usually motivate death. And so exactly, uh, taxes are definitely about money mm-hmm. or lack of money. Anyway, um, well, the first half of the book is mostly told in the form of letters from Julia in Venice to her fellow barristers in London, which is also a technique you don't see used a lot. Hillary, um, being on a visit from Oxford, often joins their young friends in a bar near Lincoln's Inn. It's called the Corkscrew, where they gather to listen to Selena reading aloud Julia's letters about her attraction to Ned um, and her problems with others on the tour, including the ex-military Major Bob, who could well be an art thief, two Americans, a sculptor, and an antique dealer. The second half of the book takes place mostly in London, where the art lover's tour group returns while Julia has to remain in Venice under suspicion. And most of the barristers play a role in solving the mystery, um, but it's up to Hillary Tamar to pull all the pieces together. So I well, find Sarah Codwell's books very funny. Oh, did you have a thought? Well, I was going to say this sounds as much like a soap opera as it does a mystery. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, there, yeah. There's a lot there's, of characters and a lot of entanglements going on. Yes. Yes. And a lot of joking. 
um, as everyone tries to offer their opinion, and Hilary Tamar, who is a true scholar, tries to put it all together. So I think Sarah Codwell's books are very funny in a specifically British way, i.e. they're literate and witty with high and low jokes about classical literature, which is probably where the title comes from, tax law and sex. Although the mannered style of the letters probably isn't for every reader, especially those who prefer straightforward dialogue and lots of action, these mysteries also surprise us. They have pratfalls, disguises, hijinks, and occasional violence. There's quite a bit of casual romance and drinking. For Julia and her friends, it consume a great deal of drink as they banter and spar in their chambers or in the corkscrew. And just a little bit about the author. Um, Sarah Codwell was the pen name of Sarah Coburn. Uh, who came from an aristocratic family. Um, she died in 2000 at age 61, and she was herself a barrister specializing in tax law. I guess no, there's no surprise there. She <laughs> later took a job at Lloyd's Bank and worked with clients in international tax planning before finally quitting to work on her last novel. It's not certain that she was a lesbian, but some people think so, and there's definitely a queer vibe in all of her books. I did meet the author once at a mystery convention in London, looking pretty butch and smoking a pipe. She signed a copy of <laughs> she signed a copy of my novel for me, this novel in particular, and I still have it. I just read it the other day, and once again, I laughed aloud at the really bitchy sniping and the close friendships of the characters, and also at the ingenious plotting. Well, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody the other day that in novels, a mystery can be just a mystery. In, in movies and television, mysteries and uh, suspense thrillers get mixed in, in together. It's rare to see a mystery that doesn't include a car chase or a person being chased down in some manner. And you can add tension in a lot of ways other than that. But they make it very simple. Whereas in a book, a mystery can just plain be a mystery. I like the way this sounds, that that is the case. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is an intellectual mystery. So, you know, it's not to say there can't also be some violence and tension in these puzzle mysteries, but um, the emphasis, I think, is on the intellectual pleasure of trying to figure it out. And her plots are so devious, you, you really can't figure them out, which I love. Um, I, a lot of mysteries, I think, yeah, 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 I know who did it, and it turns out that's who. But in her mysteries, even if I haven't read them in a while, I still think, oh, yeah, that's really clever. I didn't figure that out. Oh, good job. But she plays fair and gives you all the clues? She does. Yeah, you can Oh, back. wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If she gives you, if, as long as they play fair <laughs> and you can't figure out, then that's okay. Marshall Thornton... Talked to him a few times about it, and he, he has said, and I'm sure he's right, no matter how well you hide the clues or whatever, somebody, somebody's going to figure it out. Even if it's a good guess and they're just certain uh, they're right, even though they ne don't necessarily have the proof. So he stresses the story and the characters are extremely important. And if they figure it out, they'll keep reading if that's true. And I think that's very, very true. Yeah, I would agree. This the story and the characters are the most important. But I think that uh, writers who are clever sometimes introduce a parallel plot 
or something early on that they don't seem to follow up on. And if you're not paying attention, you won't realize that actually that's going to play a crucial role in the denouement later. So that's, I think, what I mean by clever is that, yes, you notice certain things that she lays weight on. You don't know if they're red herrings or just something that she says in passing. But in fact, usually um, everything that she's put into the book has some bearing on the plot. Yeah, I, I, I know Agatha Christie's known for, oh, she'll look into a drawer and notice and name off several items in the <laughs> drawer. And of those same several items, one of them is part of the clue, which I kind of think is a little unfair, but it, it's there. You can't argue it. And what's the name of the book again? Uh, Thus Was Adonis Murdered. You know, my only problem with having added uh, more book recommendations now that the show is back is... I keep getting more and more books that I want to read (laughs) and I have so little free time to just sit, you know, because I read for, you know, when a guest comes on, fortunately in the vast majority of cases, I enjoy them, but it's very rare that I can see a book on the shelf and just say, Oh, I'm going to read this right now because I'm always reading the others. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put this on my pile as well. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. I think you won't be sorry. And you, you know, just take a few hours and you'll be sucked right into it, I'm sure. Well, it sounds good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, sounds like you've added a good one to everybody's list. Yeah, thanks, Brad. This is always fun. I was really glad to go upstairs and then I'd forgotten that she had signed it to me. So I remembered back to BoucherCon in 1990 in London and her sitting there with her pipe. <laughs> <laughs> So, Elizabeth Sims, I am so excited because based on your experience, I cannot wait to hear what your book recommendation is today. All right, Brad. I am going to talk about a classic, an old classic, and it is Patricia Highsmith's um, The Talented Mr. Ripley. She was a queer writer, although she she wasn't really out about herself most of her career, and she wrote tremendously intelligent novels and the talented Mr. Ripley is in my opinion, having read pretty much all of her books, her best. It is a really intelligent psychological thriller. Highsmith, you know, she, she gets the reader invested in the success of this cold blooded, but somehow likable Tom Ripley and his strange, unrequited love affair really with this with his friend Dickie Greenleaf and one of the ways uh, Highsmith does this I think is that the reader can easily imagine how nice it would be to have you know riches without doing much work for them and when Ripley is under suspicion we sweat right along with him and we find ourselves rooting for him it's similar to what Mario Puzo did in The Godfather where we root for Michael Corleone, and we root for the whole Corleone family from, you know, at one point or another, most of the way. And this is this crime family that gets ahead by, you know, murder and deception and, you know, crime and dishonesty. And and yet we we root for them because the author has made, has done such a good job in making those characters so relatable. Highsmith herself, I mean, she's long dead. She wrote these books mostly, I think, in like the 50s. And she, she was kind of an, an expat, I believe. She lived most of her life in Italy, and I think she died in Switzerland. I can't know that. I'm not positive on that. But 
and she was a misanthrope. She didn't like she, she didn't like almost everybody. <laughs> she, <laughs> and she had bad things to say. She said some nasty things about blacks, about Jews, about men, about women. She was like really uh, she was not well liked at all, and so one could easily decide, well, I got to cancel her out because she, you know, she was she said nasty things. But I mean, you know, you could go down a real rabbit hole with that. But the bitch, bitch, really, she could really write, and that, and the 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 emotional impact of Ripley, I think, is just so so uh, strong. And you now she wrote a bunch of other Ripley books, other other where that character goes on, and. I don't think any of them are as strong as the first, The Talented Mr. Ripley. I might add that if you're also a film buff, there are two films that uh, I have seen based on that book. One is the 1960 French film called Purple Noon. And that's worth getting and, and watching because of how they treat it. This is a European film company treating this uh story that happens in Europe. And then uh, there's the 1999 version called The Talented Mr. Ripley, and that's the one with Matt Damon as Ripley and Jude Law as Dickie Greenleaf. As Also, it's super excellent. And the diff- endings of both those films are quite different, and so uh, they're fun to watch one after the other. I might just throw in one last thing about uh, from Highsmith. The Price of Salt is pretty good in that it was a real groundbreaking book that so the price of salt was her uh it was a, a frankly lesbian lesbian novel w- published under her pseudonym claire morgan uh, back in the day uh, so and that became the film carol that was kind of big a few some few years back and that's worth reading also as another psychological story not a thriller per se although there's a fair amount of tension and suspense and it's been recognized as the first you know novel about openly lesbian women with a happy ending. So. I'm glad I haven't seen the movie yet. It's on my, it's in my queue and I'm going to let it stay there until I read the book. Super. We all know that 99% of the time the, the book is better than the movie, mm-hmm. but not always true. And actually some really, they can't be compared. They're two different mediums. Right. Right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me spew about, <laughs> about uh, these books. <laughs> If you enjoy Queer Writers of Crime, let others know and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It's easy by clicking Love the Podcast in the show notes. If you prefer another app, you can click the same link to see if they offer them. Who knows? Brad may just read yours on the air.